0: All right, let's gather together again. And we'll now turn our attention to the reading and the preaching of God's Word. We'll hear the scripture passage today, read by Kate. The scripture reading today is from Mark chapter 11, verses 1 to 19. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, that you have made it a den of robbers? And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well... Good morning. It's nice to see people in the pews. It's nice to say hello to those of you who are online. We are glad that you are here wherever you are in your journey of life, your journey of faith. We are uh, coming to the end of our study of the book of Mark as we enter into this the holiest week in the Christian calendar. A few decades ago, I um, yes decades ago now, I was visiting Vancouver for the first time. I was preparing to visit my brother, among others, and uh, he lived in North Vancouver. Uh, I flew in pretty late at night and then just grabbed a cheap motel near the airport at the south end of the city. And then I got up the next day and I was supposed to see my brother in the morning, and when I looked outside, it was very foggy and cloudy, there was a low cloud, and I couldn't find the mountains anywhere, these legendary mountains, so I remember going to the concierge And asking him, um, I need to get to North Vancouver. This is before the iPhone era. I didn't have Google Maps. I needed help. And he said, okay, it's simple. Just get on Granville Street, head north, and look for the mountains. I said, I can't see the mountains anywhere. They're blocked by the cloud and the low fog, which is pretty typical of Vancouver. And he said, don't worry. This happens all the time. Wait an hour or two. Go to breakfast. When you come back, it will be burned off, and you will see them. And I said... Are they as beautiful as I have heard? And he said, with that smirk that if you've lived in Vancouver, you get. It's that smirk every Vancouverite gives to every Central Canadian that I live in the best place and you don't kind of look at him. Oh, they are glorious. (laughs) Sometimes glory is veiled, at least for a time. Sometimes we need to burn off the fog and the clouds that obscure glory from our eyes and from our hearts. And this morning we get a chance to do that right now. Because this passage, this passage is one of the classic examples of veiled glory. Jesus is pictured here entering Jerusalem for what the Apostle John tells us is his final week of life. And here in these three snapshots of Jesus, we see hints of the infinite, majestic glory of Jesus. This is some of the highest and most robust Christology that we see in the whole of the New Testament. But the glory is not that easy to see, not at first, especially for those who were there. It was not until Jesus had died and risen again that the clouds and the fog that surrounded his glory and the glory of this moment were burned away and they could be seen in their unveiled beauty. But let's look at the veiled glory, profound glory that we see here in these three snapshots, because here we see a king you can serve, a prophet you can trust, a priest you can love, a king you can serve. In the first scene, we see Jesus preparing to enter into Jerusalem. He's just on the outskirts. He's instructing his disciples to go and fetch a young donkey colt that he has prearranged for the purpose of his entrance. And you... You might be one of those apostles, and you might be walking to get that donkey, and you might be a bit confused. Why is Jesus doing this? For us, it seems like no big deal, but if you're a good Jewish person with pretty good theological knowledge, you'll know that unridden animals are usually reserved for a sacred or holy purpose, and animals are usually only requisitioned by either people for weddings or for royalty. For things like royal processions. So you're on your way to pick up the donkey. You've got a a code word. It's already prearranged. But you're wondering what's going on. Then you accompany Jesus into Jerusalem. And at the entry point he actually gets up on the donkey. And you're like what are you doing? Because in that day. A good devout religious Jewish person would never ride anything. If they could walk. You had to be old and infirm or lame. Or crippled to be allowed to ride anything into Jerusalem for Passover. You were, to, you were to show your humility. Even if you'd gotten there on a horse, you get off the horse and you walk with the horse in. He does the opposite. He's walking with the donkey, and then he gets up and rides on the donkey. And so you're confused. But then you start to see other followers who were with you begin to throw palm branches in front of the donkey, just why we call it Palm Sunday, throw their cloaks down. And if you are really well-versed in your Bible, you'll know that throwing cloaks in front of somebody is only ever shown to have happened once in the Old Testament to a king, Jehu, on his day of coronation. And so you begin to realize that for those who are in the know, there's elements of a real coronation entrance here. He's riding something, not walking. There are cloaks, but most of the crowd, they don't get it. Because the people who are singing, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, are just simply singing Psalm 118, which is typical for what you do when you're coming into Jerusalem. It's a very typical song. And he's riding something, but it's this foal of a donkey. And there's a couple of cloaks down. This is veiled. It's veiled. Then a scribe comes up to you. Hey, you're one of his followers, aren't you? Yes. Who is this man and who does he think he is? And you look at this scribe, they're learned scholars of the Old Testament, and say, What do you what do you mean? And they say, The donkey foal. Why is he riding it? And you go, I'm actually not sure exactly. Why? And the scribe looks at you and go, like you're an idiot. Don't you know your Old Testament? Don't you know your Torah? Don't you know Zechariah nine? And then you remember Zechariah nine. A prophecy of an old prophet that one day someone's going to ride into Jerusalem, a king. Verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Then it might hit you. This Jesus, in veiled terms, is telling the world I'm a king, I'm the king, I'm the promised final king, the king of Zechariah, the king of the ages, the king of kings, and I'm coming to my people humble and mounted on a donkey. You see it? We come to our first snapshot, a humble king on a humble colt declaring his kingship, but not like any other declaration of any kingship we've ever seen. A king who demands you to serve him and humbly obey him, but a king who comes to you humbly, almost like a servant, riding on a young young donkey. In this humble, veiled way, he declares himself. And that, that, I submit to you, is a lot like Jesus today in our culture. In our culture, Jesus is seen as this oddity a teacher of good morals and great ethics... Who, ...who somehow some people have confused as some kind of God. This puzzling paradoxical figure... ...whose teachings we love... ...but whose claims for himself we don't know what to do with. But this is the Jesus who is. And he comes to each and every one of us... ...wherever you are in your journey of faith. He comes to all of us... ...firstly as a teacher of wise things. But finally... As a king who demands our life. And that is the king who faces us here. But a king so humble that he's safe to give our life to. In Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5, Paul describes Jesus this way. He says, have this attitude among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of humanity and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Death on a cross, there it is again, glory veiled in rejection, humiliation, and contempt. Because make no mistake, Jesus' death was inglorious. It was a death of contempt. He died an outcast, despised, and rejected. But a king who suffered and died for you, who rose for you, who declared his kingship on a colt and got down off of a colt and allowed himself to be nailed to a cross for you, that's the king you can serve. That's the king you can give your life to. That's the king you must give your life to. A king you can serve, a king on a colt. Secondly, A prophet you can trust. Starting in verse 12, there's this little interlude between his Jerusalem moments. He goes back to where he's staying outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem's probably full. It looks like he's in Bethany, just a couple hours away. It says, on the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. (laughs) Sounds so petulant. It sounds so irritable. So Marcus switched to Jesus irritably, it seems, cursing a fig tree because it doesn't have figs when it's not the time for figs. It's not its fault. It's not yet time for figs. So what's going on? Well, let us be clear. There's no way to make Jesus sound reasonable. There's Scholars have tried to say, well, there's kind of a pre-fruit called a pagum. That's what Jesus was looking for. It didn't have it. Sorry, it's not what most scholars, not what I think is going on. As William Lane put it, Jesus is using what is called prophetic realism. He's using the fig tree as a symbol of the people of Israel and their rejection of him. You remember before this, Jesus entered Jerusalem, went to the temple, looked around. What did he see? He saw the court of the Gentiles, the largest part of the temple, filled with market stalls of pigeons and, far, and animals for sacrifice. So the Jewish pilgrims coming to Jerusalem wouldn't have to go all the way to the Mount of Olives where all the other market stalls had been put. No, the high priest, Caiaphas, in this in this era, had decided to do something new. He was going to have market stalls right inside the temple. A place of worship had now been given over to commerce and convenience. And for those seeking God who are outside the people of God, their place to pray and seek God is taken away. It's a horrible offense to God and misuse of this place of worship for personal convenience and comfort. So let's slow down and think about this for a moment. What's Jesus doing? When he's cursing the fig tree, he's not cursing it because it doesn't have figs. He's cursing it and letting the people be puzzled who hear it and go, why are you cursing a fig tree without figs? It doesn't have any figs. Exactly. It's not meant to be the fig tree I'm cursing. I am prophetically speaking of what Israel will do to me. They will reject me and they will bear no fruit, the fruit of faith in me. He's acting as a prophet, not a king. Now these are sobering words, but also compelling words. Because a little while later, when they go back to that fig tree, it is withered. And the disciples know that what Jesus says will happen, will happen. And these are sobering words for those of us who are investigating the Christian faith. Because what Jesus is saying, If you do not have faith in me, you will wither, just as this fig tree withers. You will stop being who you were made to be by me. Isaiah 43, 7, the prophet Isaiah quoting God says, Everyone who is called by my name, God's name, whom I, God, created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Men and women, wherever you are in your journey of faith, you were made for God's glory, full stop, no exceptions. That's who you were made for. And you're made to have faith in God and His Son, Jesus. And if we do not live for God's glory, by having faith in Jesus, His Son, this promise that we will wither will come true. We will be alienated from God for all eternity. What the Bible calls hell. But men and women, if you have trusted in Jesus... And come to him for the forgiveness of your sins. His promises are gloriously true for you. In John chapter 6, Jesus promised, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not hunger. Whoever believes me will never thirst. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out that word of prophecy is true. Here's another word of prophecy. John 15 Starting in verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in them, they will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You see, his word is true, his promises are true. That is either soberingly terrifying or gloriously reassuring. You can trust it, and you can trust him. That's the point of this little story that which Jesus says comes to be. Those whom Jesus blesses will be blessed. Those who reject him will be cursed. Come to Jesus. Give your life to him, the king who comes to you on a colt and then comes to you on a cross. Give your trust to the promises of the prophet whose words always come true. He's the king you can serve. He's the prophet you can trust. Finally, he's the priest you can love. There's a fight scene and Jesus comes back to the temple and here he cleanses the temple. He fashions a cord, a whip, and he literally uses violence to drive people out of the temple. And again, scholars cannot believe that this loving Jesus could be so angry. But we've already talked about what an offense this is to God, that his place for people to come and meet him from all over the world has been taken over for the comfort and convenience Of pilgrims who are traveling, and for the financial security of the high priest. It's disgusting to God. It's using God. It's so offensive, so insulting to God that this desecration of the temple, something that only foreign invaders had ever done before, is now being done by the religious leaders. And so Jesus is doing something quite proper and correct, extraordinary and provocative. He quotes Isaiah 56, My house shall be called the house of prayer for all the nations, but you've made it into a den of robbers. Now stop for a moment. He's announced himself as king. He's shown himself to be a prophet. But here he's showing himself to be a final priest. He's taking upon himself the role that the high priest is supposed to have, to cleanse and guard and keep pure the temple. But under Caiaphas' rule, it's the opposite. Caiaphas, to get more rents, had put up a competitive market that would compete against the rent the ones on the Mount of Olives, where the rents went to the Sanhedrin, now he had his own supply of money, and now you had political turmoil in Jerusalem. You had people zealots like religious Jewish zealots who were protesting these markets as a desecration, kind of like what Jesus did without the whip. You also have sanhedrin agents roiling up the crowd to protest because they wanted the money to go to their markets on the Mount of Olives. And so when Jesus does this, people are like, I'm not sure why he's doing this. Is he one of the Sanhedrin agents? Is he one of the zealots protesting? What's the meaning of what he did? So he doesn't even get arrested because there's a veiledness to this glorious thing that this man is doing. The veil would only be lifted about a week later when this man who cleansed the temple with a whip would cleanse the heavenly temple with the blood of his own life. You see, Jesus, in cleansing the temple here, is pointing forward to Good Friday when he, the one whom Hebrews chapter 8 says, we have such a high priest, the full and final high priest who has taken a seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens, a minister in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched. You see, in cleansing the earthly temple, Jesus is pointing forward to the day when he will die. And in his death, he will enter the true tabernacle of God, the real temple that the human temple points to. You see, the human high priest would sacrifice an animal to pay for, atone for the sins of the people of Israel. But Jesus would enter into the true temple and he by his own blood would atone for the sins of you and me. Everything wrong that we've ever done, all of our selfishness, all of our desires for comfort and convenience that block the purposes of God in our life, When Jesus went to the cross, he made one full, final, fully sufficient sacrifice so no more animals ever needed to be sacrificed again. Hebrews 9, Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. And through the greater and more perfect tent, the one not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy place, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing... An eternal redemption. By this sacrifice of himself, his offering of his own body and giving of his own blood, Jesus paid for all time for the sins of you and me, that we might receive mercy and find grace, says Hebrew four fifteen, in in time of need. Now let's see this whole picture, this puzzle that Mark is Wanting us to see this three snapshots, let's put them together. See the veiled glory of Jesus, veiled to those who do not know him and the significance of what he's doing, but infinitely glorious to us who do know him. In Jewish eyes, the three great offices for their people were the prophet, the priest, and the king. These were the three roles that ran Israel for all of the years when Israel was its own nation and they were three separate things, lest any one person would aggregate for themselves too much power and too much authority. But here in Jesus, they're combined. Mark shows us the final king of the universe, the creator of all things, coming to his people humble and mounted on a donkey. He will take the scepter of royalty in his hands, but the scepter will be the rough hewn wood of a crossbeam for a cross and he will drag that out to a lonely hill outside the city and allow himself to be nailed to it. Here we see the prophet of the ages, the one true prophet of God who curses with a word the fig tree symbolizing those who will reject him and then a few days later will go to the cross and take that very curse upon himself and be the sacrificial atonement offering For us. And we see here the final high priest come to cleanse the temples, who will make the final priestly offering in the heavenly temple that will make all priestly offerings forever obsolete because the sacrifice has been done. I remember starting that drive to my brother's place a couple hours later after breakfast, and the sun was already burning off the clouds. The mountains were peeking out, as it were, above and below the the cloud and, and fog cover, and I thought it was beautiful. And I was like, "Come on, quickly, get get rid of the veil, so I can see you in all of your glory." But men and women, in this story, the veil, the final veil, which covers the glory. Do you not see the veil? that covers the glory of Jesus in shame and humiliation and humility is the cross and that veil doesn't obscure the glory of Jesus it heightens it it magnifies it this is the point of the gospel that the veil of Christ's humility shame, rejection, degraded death this veil manifests the robust, beautiful, infinite fullness of his glory, that God himself in unveiled glory would veil himself with his own shame, his own humility, his own sacrifice. What glory is that? It's the glory of Jesus. And don't you see the veil that is the cross is the veil God used to destroy the cursed veil, the veil in our hearts that keeps us from seeing God as he is, the veil of sin that separates us from a holy God, the veil that was signified by an actual veil separating the holy of holies from the rest of the temple, that veil, when Jesus died on the cross, that veil was ripped asunder, that veil was destroyed by the blood of Christ and the beauty of the cross, the veil of separation has been replaced by the glory of the sacrifice of forgiveness, the cross of atonement, the death of our once and future king, the cursing of the final and true prophet, the sacrifice of the offering of the final great priest, Jesus himself. The cross doesn't veil his glory. The cross reveals the depths of his glory. For in him, says Colossians 1, verse 19, For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Wherever you are in your journey of faith, see in these three snapshots the glory, the glory of Jesus with unveiled eyes. Three applications, and they come from the three snapshots, but I'm going to go backwards. Firstly, rejoice in His sacrifice for you. Your sin is fully paid for if you come to Him because He didn't just mount a colt. He mounted a cross and paid for it. Rejoice in the sacrifice of the final priest for you. Secondly, rest in the truth of His promises for you. Whatever suffering, whatever pain, whatever sin you are right now afflicted with his truth his promises are yours nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus you are more than conquerors through him your present momentary sufferings are giving to you creating for you an eternal weight of glory These truths, as veiled as they may seem right now, are precious and true because he is the final prophet. Rest in the truth of these promises. And finally, submit to the rule of the humble and compassionate king. He died for you. He now calls all of us to live for him. Let us pray. Father, I thank you and I praise you for the truth of the gospel and the magnified, manifold glory that we see here. Veiled though it may be, unveiled it is now because of the cross. And may we exult in our final priest, our final prophet, our full and final king. And may we give our lives joyfully to him, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I have the privilege of seeing no questions. And maybe that is a fitting way for this service to end. I'm going to ask Jeff to come up and help us with our response. But let me pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for this week. May you prepare our hearts to receive you well. In Christ's name. Amen.